Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Saturday mornings at 8.30, Sunday afternoons at 2.30. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Thank you so much for having this time together with me. I hope you are having a great day. I'm in the book of Isaiah, chapter 26. It says, starting in verse 3, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Verse 4 says, Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. What a great way to start the hour. So if you... uh, we're listening in the last hour, and we trailed off a little too soon for you to hear once again the name of my guest. Her name is Anna Kendall, and she and her husband, Fred, wrote a book called The Seven Life Languages. Just so you know, her website is lifelanguages.com. If you felt like taking your profile and trying to figure out what your language is and the language of the people around you can better communicate so we'll take a little break. When we come back, David Wheaton will be my guest. I cannot wait. Faith Radio is so much more than just radio. We are a multimedia ministry encouraging people to connect faith to life every day through a variety of platforms. Now, you may have been driving, captivated by a Faith Radio interview, but not able to listen to it all because you had an appointment. Or maybe you had an extra busy day and you missed your favorite show. Well, thankfully, you can go back and listen to any of our programs in their entirety at MyFaithRadio.com by clicking on Podcasts. You can also download the free Faith Radio app to listen to any past programs or check out the live stream. Just search for Faith Radio in iTunes or Google Play. And for Alexa and Amazon Echo devices, just say Enable Faith Radio. Then say Play Faith Radio to listen to the live stream. Use your connected device to stay encouraged and equipped every day through Faith Radio. I always love when I get a chance to talk to my friend, David Wheaton, thechristianworldview.com. David, how are you? Hey, good afternoon, Bill. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for asking. And I was uh, talking today with an economist from George Mason University. He's in his PhD program, and we were starting to talk a little bit about this attraction to socialism. And I thought, huh, I want to talk to David about that, too. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. There's been a, a recent poll, and this is probably not that surprising. I think if you, if you look at the political discourse today, I mean, we have an open openly socialist candidate uh, running for president who probably would have won the nomination last time around if Hillary Clinton kind of hadn't pulled a few shenanigans to to get that nomination. But uh, you know, I'm talking about Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. But there was a recent poll. 
um, done by a website called the Victims of Communism Memorial. And they actually do this poll, I think, somewhat regularly like every year, uh, trying to see the the attitudes, uh, the worldview of the different generations in America to see what they think about communism, socialism, capitalism, and that sort of thing. And so their most recent poll basically said that 70% of millennials, so those aged, let's say, around mm, 20 to 40, say they are likely, 70% of millennials are likely to vote for a socialist candidate. I mean, th that is really staggering if you think about it, because there was a time in this country, uh, my parents' generation, even our generation, when just the word socialism was, oh, that's un-American. That's not, that's not what we do here. That's what they do over in, you know, places, other places around the world and never works. But mm -hmm. for the attitudes about the worldview of socialism to change so quickly, Whereas a younger generation now is completely unaware of the, apparently, or maybe unaware of it or whatever, of the history of socialism is, is pretty troubling for, I think, the future of the country. There is a visit that Senator Bernie Sanders is going to make to the Twin Cities. I think it's coming up soon. And they moved it from a 2,700-seat auditorium to a 14,000-seat arena and he will be uh, appearing with Ilhan Omar. So I think there is going to be fresh enthusiasm for that, uh, his message. And so you're right. There is a big percentage of millennials that are extremely likely to vote for a socialist candidate. And I think it's the words free stuff that's attractive. Yeah. Well, I think you have to ask the question, so why? Why has this changed so much when there's such a stigma against the system of socialism? Uh, you know, back to that poll for a second. Um, I think it, it answers the, some of the questions uh, or answers that question as the reasons why, why they want socialism. Um, one in five millennials, so 22 percent, according to this poll, believe that society would be better if all private property was abolished. Hmm. OK, compare that to one percent of the older generation. So one in five of, of younger people believe that private property, and that's really the, the, the core tenant of socialism, that there shouldn't be private property. You know, it should be all be owned by the state. So why is this? Why is this change taking place? Well, I just I, I thought about this, Bill, and I think there's there's at least four reasons for it. Um, why there's such an appetite more for socialism now uh, for this younger generation? And the first one is I think it just sounds good. It, it sounds like almost like something religious, like almost in the early church. Remember in Acts two forty four, it said those who believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone would have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. I mean, it sounds like this perfect environment where people willingly share with each other and everyone's equal and there's not these extremes in society. So I think there's a, a good sounding element to social. By the way, that's not socialism in the early church. I'm not saying it's, it is, but that's often confused for it. I mm -hmm. can tell you why it's not in a second. But so there's a good sounding reason to it. You know, it sounds like people are sharing and everyone, there's unity and everybody gets some, whether it's free health care or education or loan forgiveness or you get better wages and you get a job and you get help with housing. I mean, it just sounds good. And then the second reason I think is, I think there's, you know, there's a self-serving reason to this. You know, when these candidates are saying things like, you know, we're, we're going to forgive all your student loan debt, 
Um, well, that's pretty enticing to someone who's $100,000 in debt. You mean someone's going to pay this off? I don't need to pay this off. I mean, it sounds great. It's free stuff, like, as you just mentioned. I think the third reason is, and this is the more troubling reason, this is really goes back to our educational system, is that, I hate to say it, but I think millennials are too young to know the history of socialism, you know, the transitional state between capitalism and communism and socialism, as Marx said, people don't know the history of it and where it leads. I mean, the free market system we have in this country, you can call it capitalism, but it has led to all the wealth of this nation and the innovation because there's an incentive built into the free market system for people to achieve and, and better their lives. And finally, all this, we already mentioned this a little bit, the fourth reason I think why younger generation wants socialism, because there are some charismatic figures who are promoting it. I mean, Bernie Sanders is out there unapologetically saying, I'm a democratic socialist. Vote for me. Here's what I'm going to do for you. We, we need socialism, not capitalism. Elizabeth Warren, and she doesn't claim to be a democratic socialist, but her viewpoints are very much, probably not too different than Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, all of these folks are pushing socialism. They're young, except for Bernie, and they're charismatic. They're good speakers. They, they're able to, to make the policies of socialism sound good. So I think those are some of the reasons why I think it's becoming more, more uh, popular for the younger generation. Mm -hmm. David, what are students learning in, at secular universities? Well, they're, they're learning that capitalism is bad. Mm -hmm. uh, that it creates, you know, wealth in inequality. That one percent of the population controls most of the wealth. Uh, that you know, people, the system's rigged. You always hear that that that's that thing uh, said by candidates. The system's rigged against you. You can't move up and down. But that's just not true. Um, you know, this is we have great opportunity in this country. People come here from other places and they work hard and. They do well and they achieve, they, they live at a standard of living that they never could have even dreamed of in another place. I mean, you can only be, you can only criticize this country living here if you really have no perspective on what it's like in other places around the world. You know, I visited so many different countries back in the day of traveling around the world playing professional tennis. And I, I got to tell you, the, the American system has its flaws. Of course, we're no perfect country, but the lifestyle here. Uh, the opportunity here, uh, the health care here uh, is just so much better than anywhere else you go in the world. So I don't know if it's a myopic view of the world that they just don't know, but something has been happening in the educational system where they're taught that capitalism bad, socialism good, America is an inherently unjust, uh, discriminatory uh, country that oppresses people. And you know what? You get told that lie long enough and you begin to believe it. And then you get this poll result, as we've been talking about today. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a little break here, David. A listener named Royce said, isn't it interesting that they want socialism as in the Russian uh, version, but want to impeach the president for Russia meddling in the election? Huh. <laughs> Makes me laugh. We'll take a little break. We'll be back with David Wheaton in just a minute. Welcome back to the show. I'm chatting with David Wheaton. You can go to thechristianworldview.org, David's website. He's a um, brilliant author, speaker, and communicator. And more than anything else, he's my friend. 
So, David, let's talk about uh, socialism and why it is unbiblical. Yeah, well, first of all, the early church, you know, they'll point to those passages in the early part of Acts, Acts 2, I think, and Acts 3, you know, where they had all things in common. That that wasn't socialism. That that was called voluntary sharing in charitable things that Christians should do. Yeah, um, exactly. So that, that let's not confuse that. That has nothing to do with socialism. Socialism is, like I mentioned, the transition between capitalism, where there is a, a very limited government in, uh, intervention in the in the affairs of life, and especially in economics and so forth. Uh, socialism gets to be greater forms of government regulation. Go- government doesn't own the means of production, but there's a strong regulation of government where there's some ownership, but just a really strong hand, more government. And of course, communism is the last stage where government owns everything. Government you know, tells government's God, basically. And so the early church was not was not socialistic. I mean, the, they they were they were doing what the Bible calls Christians to do is to share, to help those in need. So that's what they were doing there. And so I think that's that's the problem with the younger generation. There's a confusion of what socialism is, and maybe is it a biblical concept? Is it not? It's not biblical at all. Uh, you know, no really form of government in Scripture. I'll say this is forbidden, so to speak. I mean, God knew that there would be lots of different forms of government, so it's not forbidden. You know, just in the in the in, in the most you know wooden sense of the term, but socialism falls into man's sinful tendencies to desire this this godless utopia where where government is God and you you take from others who are who are income producing, you give to others who are not. You, you it's an encouragement to work as little as possible because after all, if you keep on working hard and so forth, it doesn't really matter because you get taxed so much. So what's the point in working harder and longer? And I think importantly, this, this aspect that it takes away the need for the nuclear family. You know, God designed the family, mom and dad raising children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as the hedge against government have, having to you know basically intrude into everyday life because. There's a caretaking environment there. There's a self-sustaining independence there in the nuclear family. They can provide for their family. When that breaks apart, then there's there's a need for government to step in and say, you know, look, society's going to become chaotic. Uh, people don't have families. People are out there on their own. They can't t- take care of themselves, so therefore government needs to step in. So that's why part of the reason why socialism is unbiblical Christians should want a system that leads to human flourishing, where there's where there's greater freedom, where there's greater freedom to proclaim the gospel, not enslavements. Enslavements never seen as a good thing in Scripture. It leads to enslavement to other men. Uh, it's good to be enslaved to God. That's how Christ used that analogy. But not enslavement, where we don't have any freedom to to worship as we please, to to share the gospel. Um, we want to encourage people to succeed in life to flourish, to to share voluntarily. I mean, the Ten Commandments implies uh, a, a free market system where there's private property, thou shalt not steal. That implies that people have private property that shouldn't be taken away. The Bible says if a man won't work, neither let him eat in the New Testament. There's got to be incentive to work and to earn and to take care of your family, and socialism diminishes that incentive. Mm. David, a listener just uh wrote me and said, I'm from the former Soviet Union. Remember standing in line to get bread from a bread truck. It breaks my heart that young folks want this. Yeah. 
I mean, he, that person would be able to describe this topic way better than I would because they've lived under it. You know, you just take a place, a modern example of socialism. You won't even get into, let's say, China and places like North Korea that's it's communistic. But Venezuela is a perfect example that that went the socialistic route. And the, the country is just, you know, imploded on itself and can't even sustain itself. And it's, it's heavy handed. I think the irony of this whole thing, Bill, is that people who are for social justice think that socialism is is the perfect government system. But it, ironically... People who want social justice don't realize that socialism does not lead to social justice. It leads to more government intrusion and a lack of liberty in society where where the favored classes in society get social justice. But if you're a Christian, if you have a different way of thinking than the government or a different way of living and so forth, you don't get you don't get social justice. You're you're on the outs because you're not one of the favored classes of the socialist government. I mean, ultimately, Socialism is about bigger government, and bigger government inexorably leads to lesser liberties. And I think if we keep that in mind, we understand why socialism is not God's intention for man, for human flourishing. A free market, limited government system is much better. Yeah. Now, David, remind us how socialism does not foster social justice. Well, Social justice is the desire for there to be, you know, they see society as, you know, the oppressors in society or yeah. oppressing people of, lo- of lesser classes, you know, whether they're minority races or homosexuals or those who are poor and so forth. So people who are for social justice will often say, you know, social socialism is where we need to go. Uh, that's how we create equity in society. So there's not these big disparities between rich and poor, certain races, other races, minorities, and the majority. But the problem is, like, let's just take Venezuela, for example, or let's say even an extreme example in China. There's no religious liberties in China. There's no social justice for Christians there. Their churches are mown down, and they can't say anything about it because government has all the power. When you give more power to government, you, you, you lose liberty. And that's exactly what happens in a in a socialistic environment. So ironically, that that's the big um, misunderstanding that you won't get more social justice. You only get more social justice for the favored people in a socialistic society. If you want more social justice for people, allow people to have more liberty, and that's how you get more social justice. Mm-hmm. When I think of the word socialism, I I think of it as the you know the concentration of power into the hands of the government elites. And then they're going to decide, they're going to do the central, they're going to do all the planning of the economy and they're going to, they're going to redistribute the wealth. And I don't, I don't know who signs up for that. I don't think Jesus called for any of that. No, but you know, that's very, that's very attractive to people though. Many people would say, well, you know what? I I can't get ahead in society. I, I don't, you know, it's rigged against me, and I need health care, I need housing, I need child care, I need a, quote, living wage, I need transportation, I need all. I need free education. So when you hear these kinds of things, free, 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 it's not free. There's nothing—government earns no money in and of itself. Government must take money by, by taxation. Taxation is inherently coercion. No one pays taxes willingly. We all pay taxes ultimately at the at the at the muzzle of a gun. If you don't pay, you they come to your house and take you away. So this is not this is not voluntary charity. But when you start hearing this free, 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 just know behind that that's the socialistic worldview behind it. It's not free. People who are working hard, who are income producing, are having their their income taken away 
and redistributed to others who perhaps aren't willing to work hard and try to get ahead. Now, that being said, there are certainly some people in society that need uh, help, and you know, from the church and also even from the government. I think there there is room for a social safety net in society for people truly who who need help. But that's not the case for a lot of our big government systems. They operate so much. Uh, on the, the the factor of there's almost an encouragement not to work. You know, have more kids, therefore you'll get more government subsidy. I mean, there's a there's a disincentive to mm-hmm. work and to do the right thing because if you do, it's not going to help you as much in getting on being on the take from the government. Yeah, you know, David, I love the parable of the talents, and I I'm thinking about the laborers that came that were you know agreed to get a full day's wage. And then some who just worked an hour got a full day's wage. Jesus basically said to him, don't I have the, you know, the right to do what I want with my own money? And it's a pretty much a testament to supply and demand, private property and of, you know, voluntary contracts, not socialism. Right. right. That's a that's a business owner. Right. Yes, he a goes business off owner. in the morning. He goes off in the morning. It's his business. He's hiring people. He's giving people work so they can feed their families. And then he's criticized at the end of the day for paying the people who came at, let's say, 5 p.m. They only worked an hour. And yet he gave them the exact same amount that he gave the people who had worked all day. And the people who came early were like, well, that's unfair. Well, no, it wasn't unfair at all. He paid them what they were due. Right. And he was being generous with the, he was being voluntarily generous with the people who came later in the day. And he should be praised for that. But our human tendency is not not to praise him for that is to think, well, if he paid that much to them, then he should be way more generous with the people who came earlier. But that that's up to him. He's the one who employed all those people. He's the one who took the risk of trying to earn earn money to have people work for him. And his voluntary charitable act late in the day got criticized, but Christ turned around and said, no, this is not the way it should be. He was being charitable to pay the people late in the day who didn't have an opportunity to work all day as much as he did pay them. Yeah, and it really sounded more like uh, an endorsement for capitalism than it does socialism. Right, and, I, and I'm not you know, here today to say there's no problems with capitalism. There, there does need to be government some some limited government regulation over capitalism. Otherwise, you'd have the sinful nature of man, you know, going into monopolies, uh, oppressing people, hiring ten-year-old kids to work for them for a dollar a week. So there does need to be some um, government regulation, even over capitalist societies. But the point is, to what degree? And America has done so well because there's been a, a principle of limited government, limited regulation, and that's the kind, the, the side of the spectrum between capitalism and socialism we want to find ourselves on because there's greater human flourishing on that side. Yeah. David, thank you so much for uh, doing the show. I always love talking to you. I, I do too, Bill. You have a great day. Yeah. Thank you. Blessings to you and your fam. David Wheaton has been my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David. Buy his books, read his blog, see his picture. It's all right there. Take a little break, and then uh, we're going to have a great discussion with Pastor Brent Kuhlman coming up next.
Welcome back to the show. I'm glad to be connecting once again to Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. Pastor, nice to have you back on the show. Thanks, Bill. Great to be with you. Yeah, you know, I've been um, following carefully the, uh, what would be it, what, what, what would we call it, the the rot of our world uh, through a progressive stepping away from uh, solid biblical doctrine. And I love the fact that you uh, stand in the, uh, stand firm in the pulpit. Well, thanks. Uh, uh, that's what it means to be a steward. <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, we're seeing uh, paganism all over the place, aren't we? Right. And even in the church. Ooh, say more. Well, um, you know, I was asked uh, by one of my members not too long ago to do a Bible study on, or a, a study, if you will, on the differences between the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and other Lutheran churches in this country. And we spent a lot of time on the differences between the Missouri Synod and the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. The acronym, of course, is ELCA. And I approached it this way. I said, uh, any church that wants to be relevant will... Uh, fall into, as you just mentioned, into rot, and can even be led into uh, apostasy and even mm-hmm. paganism. Yeah. So, for example, what's relevant today? Well, relevant is do anything sexually you want, do anything genderly you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, name the topic. You know, um, For example, uh, another thing that's relevant today is social justice. And so social justice now has become the gospel. So why are there differences between the Missouri Senate and the ELCA? Well, it's quite simple. The differences between how we view the scriptures, how we view uh, sexuality, marriage, gender, justification, etc., cetera, uh, boils down really quite easily to the word relevance. The ELCA wants to be relevant, and so therefore the ELCA has abandoned, and I'm speaking in general to make my point, there are exceptions with certain pastors and congregations. But in general, the ELCA has gone the way of the rot and the apostasy and moved into the slippage of paganism itself. Um, uh, let, me, let me just talk about the sexuality issue. Um, the ELCA has approved um, homosexuality. It's fine to be homosexual, not just in desire, not just in thoughts, but also in deeds. Yeah, they've approved the fact that uh, pastors can be practicing gays and lesbians, and there's no problem with that. Um, This is slipping into not just rot, but paganism. Mm -hmm. And and what I mean by paganism is this. It goes back to the Genesis 3 problem. Remember that Satan told Adam and Eve, you can't trust God. You know, he's holding out on you. And you guys being creatures, that's not enough. Be like God. Trust me. Trust what I say. Now, again, I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. But trust me. You'll be like God, and you'll know what's good, and you'll know what's evil. You'll call the shots about what's good. And you'll say what's evil. And so the old Genesis 3 problem is rearing its head in most of the mainline churches in America and in our discussion here, the ELCA, with regard to sexuality. So the ELCA has called what is good evil, namely good, man and woman, husband and wife. That's what's God-pleasing. They say, oh, no, no, that's evil. And now they say what is evil, namely male, male, female, female, and now it's throuples, you know, with the congresswoman from California, that's all coming out, you know. Katie Hill, who resigned, all that, which is evil. Now they call that good. Mm-hmm. See, this, this, is, this is satanic. <laughs> I've, got, I've gone from rot to paganism to satanic, but it is. Yeah. It really is. And now we start to uh, find other terms. And I don't know if this is a new term or an old term, but uh, speak to anonymous Christianity. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, somebody in my Bible class asked about you know the Roman Catholic Church and you know is Rome going in this way? And I said absolutely yes. So in the in the Second Vatican Council that was called by, by Pope John the Twenty Third um, in the nineteen late sixties and seventies, I believe. I think those are the right dates. Uh, I'm doing this off the top of my head, so I may be mm-hmm. wrong on the dates. But any in any event, Karl Rahner was one of the foremost theologians at the Second Vatican Council. He was a German Roman Catholic theologian. And he said that you can be a Christian and you don't even know it. So you can be a Muslim, you can be a Sikh, you can be a Hindu, you can be a Jew. In fact, you can be an atheist and you're still a Christian and you don't know it. This is called anonymous Christianity. So in other words, you can be saved without confessing the Trinity, without believing in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And in this way, the Roman Catholic Church then, uh, what's going on now, if you've, have you heard about the Amazon Synod? Oh, I did hear briefly. Uh, do say more about it, though. Well, this is, this is being held in Rome with uh, South American and Central American theologians who are basically saying, you know, we're going to do our own thing apart from Rome, if you will. And the Pope, Pope Francis, has even said that the indigenous people— and the indigenous pagan religions of Central and South America, we shouldn't just evangelize them, they should evangelize us. And in fact, recently at this Amazon, Amazon Synod, there were, they had to throw them out. Faithful Roman Catholics had to throw statues and images of pagan deities, pagan statues, out <laughs> of one of the places in Rome. This is, again, this rot, this slippage into paganism. And this all flows because people ask, well, why, why does this happen? Well, they want to be relevant, just like the ELCA wants to be relevant. And what is relevant in the world? What is relevant in the world is to say that it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter who you believe in. We're all going to the same place anyway. So anonymous Christianity with the Second Vatican Council and now Amazon Senate today with Rome. Watch this very carefully, folks how this Amazon Senate goes. Again, it's um, a universalism as well, if we're just assuming yeah. everyone is going to be end up in a good place, except, of course, Hitler and uh, the few other people that we don't like. Um, well, they, they would probably see Origen taught something that was wrong, that was condemned as well, this, this early church father. Origen taught that at the end, everything would be uh, uh, brought back, even the devil and all of his angels will not be in hell. And uh, this is coming back. Originism is coming back in that, in that respect with all of what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Brent, does it go back to a lack of understanding of sin? Yes. And, and again, I'm going to go back to my term I mentioned earlier, relevance. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to be relevant? Well, we're going to ignore God's Word and His revelation of who we are as sinners in His Word. Because what's relevant is do whatever you want Whatever you desire, do it. And so when, that, when, is the, if the, when that's what it means to be relevant, then when you read Scripture about what it means to be a sinner, we throw that out. And then here's the most, you know, here's the most or the worst of everything, Bill. And I have to say this before I forget. Okay. Here's the worst. With what I just talked about with the ELCA, is that Jesus then gets absented from the church. Now, what do I mean? I'm going to make a general statement to make my point. Generally speaking, ELC congregations on the marquee outside of their building says the welcoming place. And what that means is that we're a judgment-free zone. 
We're not going to judge you as a sinner in any way, shape, or form. And in particular, we will never judge you with regard to sin, with regard to your sexuality. Mm -hmm. We'll never judge that. Now, if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, here's what I mean. When, When you exclude Jesus from sin, including sexual sin, then you divorce Jesus from sin and the sinners that commit it, and you absent Jesus from the church. And what happens? What's the ultimate problem? You are no longer church. Or to put it another way, when the church fails to call people uh, sinners and their sin sin, then Jesus gets changed. Not He's no longer savior of sinners. He becomes some just social justice warrior, etc. But the main point I want to make here, and this is the biggest danger of all for my money, is when you say that you're not a sin and we're not going to judge you as a sinner, and especially your sexual sin, you then divorce Jesus from sinners, and then you are no longer church. And the reason I say that is in Matthew 18, you remember, the, the whole context of that chapter is how you deal with sinners in the church and their sin. And you go and talk to them, and you try and win them. You try and tell them, I forgive you. And then Jesus says, in the context of that, where two or three then are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. You remember this? Mm-hmm. That's the entire context. So when, when you no longer will call sinners sin, and you don't need Jesus as the Savior of sinners and their sin, then he is no longer in the midst of them. And then you're no longer church. Why? Because you've divorced him from the church. This is what's being done on purpose, all under the guise of piety, religion, etc., So, Brent, what are some of the other side effects that come from wanting to be relevant? Might they be things like, well, let's just dump some of the pronouns and talk about, I believe, in God the Mother. Maybe we should uh, bring up that once in a while. Yes, and this gets to another big issue. I'm glad you raised this, Bill. Okay, so to be relevant, then, is you cannot use patriarchal terms. You can can no longer call God Father. You can no no longer call Jesus His Son. And why is that? Because we've all learned that that's just something that white male Christians have imposed upon people. And so it's a construct. And so it has to be deconstructed. Or what is has to now be destroyed and rebuilt. Therefore, in order to be relevant, these things, this construct of white males and white Christian males has to be destroyed and then replaced with what's relevant. And what's relevant? Paganism. Paganism, Mother Nature, Earth as our mother, the very things that the Israelites encountered when they entered the land of Canaan or the Promised Land, and that God said, you must eliminate this. And don't intermarry with these people, because if you do, they'll lead you astray. Ask Solomon about that. He'll tell you all about all about books. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay? So, now, why is, here's another reason why this is so important, Bill. When churches then decide to say the creed and change the name of God and say, I believe in God the Mother, or maybe not so crass, just simply, I believe in Creator, or I believe in Savior. Yeah, so they're dumping words like Father. Yeah. Here's, here's the biggest issue. You see, in the Scriptures, one of the greatest gifts that God gives His people is His name. And why is that important? Here's why. Because when God gives you his name, he gives you access to himself. Now, when you change God's name, you can no longer address him in the way he's given it, and therefore you don't have access. Let me illustrate. Let's pretend you and I don't know each other at all. 
you're in a car accident and I'm walking by and we don't know each other. And you say, hey, man, can you help me? And I look at you and you're weird and I keep walking. But everything changes in our relationship when I come up to you and I say, and I shake your hand and I say, hello, my name is, did you hear that? Mm -hmm. My name is Brent Kuhlman. What did I just give you? I just gave you my name. Therefore, you have access to me and you can call upon me for help. Mm-hmm. So God gives you his name, and one of the ways that he gives you his name is baptism, Matthew 28. When you're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, God has given you his name, and therefore you have access to him. When you change the name or refuse to confess the name that he's given you, you no longer have access to him. And what, what, what's the final result of this? Then you're no longer what? What did I say earlier? You're in danger of no longer being church. Yeah, being a church. See, people, people don't take I, – well, I think part of the problem is what I'm saying might be shocking to people, and maybe it's shocking because many people, Christians include, don't know their Bibles very much anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pastor Brent Kuhlman is my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm delighted to be talking to Pastor Brent Kuhlman. He is the uh, pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. Uh, right before we went to break, Brent, uh, I was we were talking about the name, and God gives you his name, and God purposefully calls himself Father and Jesus his Son, so we really have no right to uh, redefine his gender, do we? Oh, could you say that again? We had a little glitch. In yeah, the, uh, phone yeah. Line. When we were talking about People trying to be more relevant, and, and then we're saying that God purposefully calls himself Father, and he calls his Jesus his son, so we have no right to try to redefine his gender. That's correct, or the way he gives himself to us, and the way he is. And, and if we think that we can do that, then we're playing Genesis 3 again. Mm-hmm. We're God. We're no longer content to be a creature. See, when, when you know... See, this is the wonderful thing about being justified by faith alone in Christ Jesus. And this is what's so wonderful when Jesus in John 8 says that if you're my disciples, you abide in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. When, when the wonderful part of this is that you are content then to be like Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. You are content to be his creature, to live by faith. Remember Paul says that the justified live by Faith, that's Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. When you live by faith, you're content to be a creature, and you're content then to let God be who? God, mm-hmm. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You only run into problems when you believe the satanic lie. Well, I'm going to call the shots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Brent, let's talk about uh, people inside the church, the faithful uh, group inside, who are apparently falling prey to some of these ideas. And believing these lies. Right. And uh, this, this is one of the tragedies, uh, uh, one of the greatest tragedies that happen in the history of the world, in the history of the church. Uh, on the one hand, we should not be surprised because Jesus said this would happen. The apostles said this would happen. 
You know, Paul talks about this in Second uh, Timothy when he talks about people who have itching ears. Remember this? Mm-hmm. And I think it's uh, doing this off the top of my head. I think Second Timothy chapter three talks about what will happen in the last days. Um, there will be people who will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess what I'm trying to say, and not very well, so pardon me, is this, we shouldn't be surprised. This is part of what it means to live in the last days. Now, part of also living in the last days is, as Paul says, since I mentioned the letters to Timothy, is one of the main things that Timothy must do, one of the main things that Titus must do, and what all pastors must do in the church is contend against the false teaching and the false teachers. Uh, Paul speaks of it this way in 1 Timothy. He says, Timothy, you must fight the good warfare. <laughs> and, and that's mm-hmm. confessing the truth and going against the false teaching and false teachers. So it's church militant time until the last day. Yeah. And we trust the Lord. Here's where we must trust the Lord. There are two pitfalls here. One is pessimism. Pessimism is one of the greatest sins that a pastor and, and parishioners can have. When you're pessimistic then you don't trust the Lord. The other danger is to be triumphalistic uh, and then be utopian. And that's, of course, false. When you're a utopian, boy, then, then things go bad. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think of Acts 4.12 and salvation is to be found in him alone in all the world, there is no other name by which you can be saved. Yes. And then I think of the, the people trying to be more relevant and they're, instead of saying Jesus Christ are only the only son of God, they're referring to him just as Savior without a name. And I go, that's absolutely absurd. Yes, and we have to be precise about this. By the way, this brings up something. We were talking about Rome earlier before we went to break. You know, one of the things that illustrates this anonymous Christianity and the rot and the uh, apostasy and then the moving into paganism is in 1999... Do you remember what happened in May of 1999? Well, that's that's a odd question to ask, but this was for me. I'm a geek. I'm a church history geek, so I pay attention to these things. In May of 1999, Pope John Paul II he kissed the Quran, hmm. and this is in, this is, he did it at the Vatican, and he did it with an entire delegation of the Shiite Imam of the Kadum Mosque and other prominent Muslims. Now, most people might say, well, that's no big deal, Pastor Goldman. It is a big deal. Anybody who's been to a Roman Catholic Mass, what's, what, is, what does the priest do before he reads the Scriptures? What kisses does he, the he Bible. Kisses it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he kisses the Bible. Why? Because that's God's Word. This is God's Word, and we, we hold it as holy and sacred. Now, when the Pope kisses the Quran, that gives the Quran equivalence with what? The Bible. Exactly. In fact, it, he, he's confessing that not only is the Old Testament, New Testament, the Word of God, but by kissing the Quran, he's saying that too is revelation from God, and we must listen to it. Now, again, this is huge. It's absolutely huge. And you know, recently Pope, France, Pope Francis met uh, in Abu Dhabi. You remember that? Remember what he said? He said that God's will—this is going to blow your minds, folks—God's will is— pluralism, and diversity of religions. And, of course, that contradicts what you quoted from Acts 4. Mm -hmm. It contradicts what Jesus says in John's Gospel, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you want to be relevant, 
those things have to be thrown out. And if you want to be relevant, then you kiss the Quran, and then you said that God wills pluralism and diversity of religions. Brent, it's, uh, this is difficult stuff because you see it all around, all around with people saying, I'm going to just sort of invent my own system that's going to work better for society. And well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. What I, when I said earlier is that we try not to be, we, we must guard against the sin of pessimism. And here's what I want to say with mm-hmm. this. Jesus gives a promise, Bill, in Matthew's gospel. Y'all remember this, don't you? Peter, when he confessed Jesus to be the son of God, the Christ, the son of the living God. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus said, I will build my church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Ah. <laughs> Amen. That's that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we don't despair. Yes, it's hard work, but we must not despair. And so when the times are tough, like they are today, what do we do? We do like Paul says to Timothy. He says, first of all, in First Timothy two, first, which means not just the first thing in an order of procession, but this is primary. One of the primary things that the church must do, led by her pastor at church on Sunday morning, is to pray, and pray for who in particular? For kings and all those in authority, and for all men. Mm-hmm. So, to, to Jesus, he's Lord. Oh, yeah. you know, this brings up another thing. Go ahead. You know, in Acts, prayer, prayer, read, read prayer in Acts. This is what the church does. She prays. In Acts chapter 2, you remember, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and then what's the fourth? The prayers. The prayers. In the Greek, it's plural. It's not prayer in general. It's the prayers. Okay. All right. Well, give us a give us a little counsel as to how should how we should respond to wrong ideas, where we still want to be showing uh, God's love and light and show the face of Jesus to people that we're disagreeing with. Well, first, know your scriptures. You've got to know your scriptures. So you, this is the sword of the spirit. So know your Bible. Know the Word of God. Secondly, know that you're a sinner for whom Jesus died. And w- when you speak to people about topics, then you can be humble. Uh, not arrogant. Mm-hmm. You can be gentle and you can be loving. Trusting what? Trusting that the Lord will use you as his instrument to speak your word to help people. And part of the help sometimes is to say, oh, dear brother, dear sister, that's simply not true. That's not what the scriptures say. And of course, if they say something opposite than what I like to do, I like to tweak them and say, so you think you have better words than the Lord, do you? <laughs> That's not very good. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Please, I beg you, don't do that. Yeah. When it, se- <laughs> it seems like whenever you bring up the idea of sin, people usually jump on the, oh, you think you're so self-righteous. Right. And, and that we have to guard against that. I, of course. And I always try to remind people that just sin is a positional uh, place that I live in and you live in. So we're, we're on the same playing field when it comes to sin. Yeah, we're that's right. all sinners, and we need a way to uh, have redemption from sin, and that's through Christ. So um, people just are so defensive when you talk about sin because they think it's, oh, what, I'm the sinner and you're not. Yeah, yeah. So your point is well taken. When you talk to people, it's not like I'm better than you are. It's, no, I'm a sinner like you. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus died for my sin, and now I want you to believe that too. Would you please believe that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's Matthew 18, by the way. Right, right. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, Brent, it's, it's, uh, 
the Lord told us that we would be up against this. This would be the opposition and the hostility we would face, and he did it himself first. So uh, we're in good company, aren't we? Yes. You remember the book of Revelation portrays the victory has been won. Jesus has been slain, but he's won. That's, one of the, that's the main message of the book of Revelation, and it should teach us, especially with what we're talking about today. The victory's been won, so we go about our work knowing that, trusting that, you see, mm-hmm. so that we don't despair or so that we don't become utopian or arrogant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're like that uh, player in the huddle that just fires everybody up. <laughs> I hope so. No, you, you, you fire me up, so I, I just enjoy uh, talking to you, and thank you so much for doing the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Bill. God's peace. God's peace to you. Pastor Brent Kuhlman has been my guest, pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Murdoch, Nebraska. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for listening and being with us today. Um, Just I love you, and I I love that you support and listen to Faith Radio. As you lay your head on the pillow tonight, just know that God's working out his great plan in your life. God bless. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.